Uh, interestingly, Jim uh, gave us the definition of hope, the uh, theme for today. We've got this word over here, hope, and that it's not, when we talk about hope, it's not this wishful thinking. It's a surety. It's a, talking about the future, but it's a surety. It's a surety. It's pr- the promises of God. It's a, it's a sure thing. We have our hope in Christ. And today, uh, the title of the sermon, A Different Response to Death, could be titled, uh, Hope in Death. And so I just want to uh, open with just a little bit of an illustration of that. John Patton was a missionary to uh, the South Pacific Islands known as the New Hebrides. He was there from 1858 until uh, 1905, almost 50 years. When he arrived, there were no Christians, no believers in the New Hebrides. But by the time he left, virtually everyone on the island that he lived had become Christians, had converted to Christ. Now the fact that Patton went there at all is a testament to his trust in the Lord. 19 years before he set sail, the first Christian missionaries who went to the New Hebrides Uh, John and James Harris were, upon their arrival, killed and cannibalized, eaten. And so 19 years later, when Patton proposed to go himself, he was met with uh, some great resistance and opposition. One man, uh, a Mr. Dixon, said to him, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Reasonable thought. It had happened before. Not out out of the line of possibilities. Mr. Dixon and others felt that Patton, a gifted minister, should not risk uh, his life for those uncivilized people. But Patton said this, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, I guess Mr. Dixon was an old guy, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, my resurrection body will rise as far as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. In the face of his own possible, maybe even likely death, uh, John Patton spoke with fearless confidence, with hope about what lied beyond the grave. This is quite a contrast to what most in our world uh, think about when, when we think about death. We're taught that death is the end of existence. And quite naturally, death, our own, or, or the death of loved ones, is greatly feared even. One recent convert to atheism said, I have no belief in the afterlife. Because of this, my fear of death has increased. I was not brought up with religious parents, but I was told about heaven and whatnot. But now I know that there is nothing beyond the grave, and the sheer thought of this keeps me up at night. I'm not entirely sure what what help I want or what help I need. I just wish there was something that could comfort me about death. I don't think this uh, atheist is alone. My guess is there, there are many, maybe even some here this morning, who need a comfort, who've experienced the loss of loved ones or who are facing the possibility, the reality of their own death. That's all of us, uh, eventually, anyway. And you want to experience the comfort, the confidence, the hope that John Patton expressed, that your resurrection body will rise in the likeness of your risen Redeemer. You want to have that kind of hope. So as we come to our passage for today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13-18, to if you want to turn there in your Bibles, 
We're going to see how the author of this letter, this is a letter to the church in Thessalonica, written by the Apostle Paul and maybe uh, some of his pals who were with him. We're going to see how, how he comforts, how he corrects, and how he encourages the church with regards to their view, their thinking about death. He, doesn't, he does this by making an argument that believers should have a different response to death. And the first thing that Paul does is he states the purpose of the argument. Verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, he writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Euphemism for death. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The reason for what Paul is going to write, what's going to follow, the argument that he's going to make, uh, is that the church of Thessalonia has gotten some bad information. This is the reason he's making this argument. They've gotten some bad information about those who've fallen asleep, those who've died. And he doesn't want them to be uninformed. We don't know what the confusion, where the confusion came from, but as we'll see, they seem to be concerned, fearful even, about those who died before Christ's return. And so Paul will make an argument seeking to inform them about what happens after death. And we can learn some things, and we can have hope, and we can be encouraged because of his argument. Why is he making this argument? Because their wrong beliefs about death were affecting their emotions and and probably their actions. We don't want you to have wrong, uninformed beliefs about death, he says, because they're causing you to respond just like those in the world who have no hope. As in our world today, uh, in the Greek and Roman world of Paul's day, death was greatly feared. It meant entering into an unknown and uncertain realm. So death caused this kind of hopeless grief. When those died, there there was great mourning and wailing. And Paul says, the people of God should be different from the people of the world. He understood that our beliefs, what we believe, affects our emotions and our actions. So the reason for his argument is is to give the church in Thessalonia and us a correct the correct information about death, so that they and we will have a different response to death. That that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Now, I want to make it clear: uh, Paul is not arguing we shouldn't grieve over death. Paul in First Corinthians uh, fifteen twenty six calls death our enemy. Death is an unnatural result of sin. Death is wrong. uh, Death should be despised and grieved over. But what Paul is arguing is that our grief over death should be different from that of the world's. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Why? That takes us to the, the points of his argument. The points of the argument. The first point is this. The resurrection of Christ. Paul does not... Uh, want them to be uninformed about the death of their fellow believers because it's causing them to experience hopeless grief. So in verse 14, he writes, For, because, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Christ, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Paul argues that their current belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ should remove their hopeless grief with regards to the death of their fellow believers. Notice that Paul doesn't argue that the resurrection took place. 
that's not the point. He's not arguing that Jesus rose from the dead. The Thessalonians already believed this. They already believed in the resurrection of Christ. For them, Jesus' resurrection was a historical fact. Even in our day, 2,000 years later, there's excellent historical, logical evidence for the resurrection of Christ. But, but the Thessal- Thessalonians also had this personal evidence. Witnesses to the resurrection were still alive. People who had seen Jesus still alive were testifying to the truth of a risen Savior. Paul himself, on the road to Damascus, had met with Jesus. Paul could testify that Jesus was alive. So Paul argues that because of the truth, because of your belief in the truth that Jesus is risen, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who've fallen asleep. Put simply, Jesus rose, therefore through Jesus, all believers, including those who've already died, will rise. Now you might ask the question, how does Paul make that, that step that, that in the argument that Jesus' resurrection means our resurrection? Notice the phrase, through Jesus. God will resurrect the dead through Jesus. Then if you look down in verse 16, which we'll talk about more in, in more depth in a moment. It says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Our resurrection will come through Jesus. It is for those who are in Christ. Paul's arguing that there's, uh, when you become a believer, a follower of Christ, when you put your trust in Him, that there is this intimate connection that's created between the believer and between Christ. That His resurrection then means our resurrection. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, and I would, uh, I would advise you to do that, you'll find that our resurrection is only one of the many benefits we receive because of our connection with Christ. I did a, a, a little research, a little search in my Bible for the phrase, just the phrase, in Christ. Listen to a, a sample of what I found. We receive justification, grace, and redemption in Christ. We're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. We receive eternal life in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We cannot be separated from God's love in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We receive God's wisdom in Christ. God becomes our Father in Christ. We are made alive, resurrected in Christ. We are new creatures in Christ. We are sons of God in Christ. We are one, united in Christ. Now I could go on. There's just, it just keeps going more and more. But, but just let me end with Ephesians 1.3. It, it seems to sum it up. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Those who are in Christ are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, including resurrection from the dead. Need I say more? No, but I will. Just to make sure we get this amazing truth. Being in Christ is like being married. Uh, uh, The Bible uses that illustration. We are the bride of Christ, right? Think about a young college man who gets married. And before getting married, he racks up all kinds of debt. Credit card after credit card, student loan after student loan. And by the grace of God, he meets and he marries a woman who has lots of money, an heiress. 
And suddenly, barring a prenuptial agreement, everything that is his, his debt, becomes hers. And everything that is hers, her riches, become his. That's what it means. That's what it looks like. That's a picture of what it means to be in Christ. And that, that's Paul's argument in this verse with regards to the resurrection. That Christ's resurrection from the dead almost 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago, means that every single believer in Christ will be resurrected from the dead. Therefore, our response to death must be, should be, can be different from the world's. We do not grieve without hope. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which assures us of our own personal resurrection by Christ. And if that's not enough... Paul continues his argument. Not only do we have hope in the resurrection of Christ, but also in the return of Christ. Look at verses 15 through 17. I'm going to read them all and then we'll walk through them. I want us to get the flavor here. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. Now there's a lot of stuff here. These are uh, maybe well-known, maybe you've heard these verses. They're even debated verses. They're dealing with future events, maybe end time stuff, and and they've been interpreted in different ways throughout church history. But as we look at them, I want us to remember the context. What's what's going on here? Paul's seeking to comfort, correct, give right information to the church in Thessalonica because they're experiencing this hopeless grief over their fellow believers who've died before the return of Christ. So keeping that in mind, Paul begins with For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. Paul's received a specific word from the Lord regarding his return, the Lord's return. And for their comfort and for their correction, he passes that word along to the Thessalonians. He continues that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. The the I'm having trouble with the Thessal the Thessal the. Thessalonians. Thank you very much. They were concerned because Christ had not returned before some of their fellow believers had died. Apparently, they thought Christ would return to earth and set up his kingdom uh, with those who were alive. And so they didn't know what was, what's the deal? Why are people dying? We, we, we're all in this together. Paul says, no worries. When the Lord returns, the living you guys who are reading this letter will not precede the dead. Then he goes on to describe the Lord's return. This is kind of a bonus, I think. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Have hope. Paul emphasizes that Jesus himself is coming, is descending. He will not be sending an ambassador, a representative, an angel. Jesus will one day leave the right hand of the Father and descend from heaven. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what that's going to look like. He doesn't give us a visual, but he does give us what, it sound, what it's going to sound like. He says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Apparently, he's bringing some angels, at least an archangel with him. Apparently, Jesus' return is going to be an event. It's going to be loud. Three sounds will accompany it. First, a cry of command. That phrase is used of of a king or a warrior who's about to take his army into battle. Before the battle, he issues a a cry of command. It's a battle. It's a call to battle. A shout for victory. Calling his army to himself. And what Paul is saying is that, that when Jesus returns, when he comes back, he'll not be coming in the same way that he came the first time. He's not going to be in a a manger. He's not going to be a baby. It's not going to be a secret way. He'll come with a shout. With a cry of command. And second, he'll be announced, ushered in with the voice of the archangel. We don't know what the archangel is going to say. We don't know who the archangel is. Probably Michael, maybe. But we do know... He's going to be saying something about Jesus, announcing His return. Jesus descends with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and finally, and the sound of the trumpet of God. Historically, when an army goes into battle, they they first sound a loud trumpet. Like like if you see in the the westerns, the bugle, the charge. Is that right? I don't know. Whatever. Uh, There's this sound. The trumpet goes forth. So, So the cry of command, a voice of the archangel, the sound of a trumpet... All of this gives the picture of Jesus descending from heaven, ready for battle, announcing His return. King Jesus descends, the the sounds go forth, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Again, don't worry about those who've died, Paul says. They'll rise first. They'll see Jesus first. They'll hear His cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and they'll be resurrected from the dead. Now the Thessalonians in their day, were concerned for what would be relatively few people that had, had died uh, before Christ's return. So this is uh, not too long after Christ's uh, ascension into heaven. But today, we know that upon His return, millions of believers all through the ages will come out of their graves to meet Him. They'll join their King, becoming part of His great army. So that's what happens to the dead in Christ. Be comforted. They will rise first. Paul doesn't mention this. Side note, he doesn't say, well, where their bodies are in the graves and they're rising. What about their spirits? There's nothing said about that, but it's believed their spirits are with him already. And now there's a reuniting with their resurrected body that he's going to give them in. So it's not that when you die, your body and your spirit wait in the grave until his return. Your spirit goes and then your body is resurrected. That makes sense? He doesn't say that. But you might have been thinking, well, what's going on? What happens in, the, in between time? For those Thessalonians who, now it's been 2,000 years, are they still waiting in the grave? No, they're with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And then Paul writes in verse 17, so these, well, well first, these, these, uh, those who were dead rise up They join, become part of Christ's army. That's what's happening to them. Then in verse 17, he says, Then we who are alive, so this wasn't a concern to them, but this is part of what Paul is announcing. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
just in case they're wondering about what, what's going to happen to the living, the living will join the recently resurrected in the presence of the Lord. They'll be caught up to meet Christ in the clouds, in the air. That word caught up is the Greek harpazo. And it means to seize, to pull away, to carry off by force. In Latin, it's translated rapturo. And it's where the word rapture comes from. So at this point, there's a lot of things surrounding that word. So at this point, we have both those who died and those who are left alive. They're all in the clouds, in the air with the Lord. Now Paul in this passage doesn't go on to tell us exactly exactly what happens next. But he does, I believe, give us some clues. Some hold the view that that once Jesus gathers all His people in the clouds, that He'll then lead them to heaven for a period of time. And during that period, usually believed to be uh, seven years, the world is going to experience this great tribulation. Then Jesus will return again. So it was you know, the first coming, then the second coming of the clouds, and then He's going to return again to establish His kingdom upon the earth. More to it, but that's simple. This view is not only the subject of sermons and commentaries, but it's become uh, popular in fictional books and movies. This is the view presented in the Left Behind series, if you've read those uh, kind of books. Others, however, believe that once Jesus descends from heaven and gathers all the believers into the air, that they will then immediately accompany Him to earth. A couple of reasons for this view is found in our passage. These are clues to what uh, comes next. First, as we already noted in verse 16, Jesus' return will be accompanied by uh, uh, some sounds that, that, that seem to be designed to rally His troops, not to return to heaven in peace and safety, but, to, but for immediate battle. One clue. Second, verse 17. Paul says that we shall meet the Lord in the air. Now, we would know this, but uh, that word meet is important. It's the Greek word apentesis. And it has a very specific kind of meeting in mind. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Here in 1 Thessalonians 4, also in Matthew chapter 25, verse 6, when the bridesmaids are told, uh, here is the bridegroom, come and, and meet him. Same word. The idea is to go out and meet the bridegroom and then return with him to the wedding. And finally, in Acts chapter 28, verse 15, when Paul's going to Rome, Luke writes, and so he came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about it, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. The Forum of Appius and the three taverns are 30 miles from Rome. Paul's going to Rome, but the brothers don't wait for him to arrive. They go to him, they meet him, and then they return to Rome with him. It's the same idea throughout this this word is found in Greek literature. Uh, This word apentesis, apentesis, is used specifically to mean going out to meet someone important and then returning with them. If Caesar is coming to your town, you don't wait at the gates For him to come to you, you go out to him and then you return with him in triumphal procession. So so with loud battle cries and the specific meaning of the word meet as clues, it seems that Paul is implying that we will not go up to meet Jesus to go somewhere else, but rather we'll go and meet him because he's, he's the coming king. 
He's the coming king and he's gathering his army to join him. Now, there's more that we could be said about these views of what happens after uh, we meet Jesus in the air. But for our purposes, and I believe for Paul's purposes in this passage, the important thing to understand is this. The reason Paul's writing these things to the church in Thessalonica and to us is so that we will have a different understanding, a different response from the world to death. Paul makes it clear that the dead are resurrected and the living are caught up. No one's left out. All those who were, who are in Christ will be physically with Jesus in the clouds. The dead in Christ have experienced resurrection. They have their resurrection bodies. And those who are alive are changed as well. We don't see it in this passage, but in 1 Corinthians 15.52, Paul writing of this same event, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Same trumpet sound. The dead will be raised and we who are alive will be changed, will be transformed. How will we be changed? The Apostle John is helpful here. He writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. I'm not not sure exactly what it's going to be, but we know that when He appears... We will be like Him. He being Jesus. We will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Those who are caught up in the presence of the Lord, when they see Him, they'll be transformed to be like Him. So every believer throughout history is now with Jesus in the clouds. And everyone has been changed to be like Jesus. And Paul ends verse 17 with these awesome words of great comfort. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is the the great hope. This is the great hope of the Gospel. That word so is is small, but but important. It's not just a conclusion in so, and that's the end. It means in this way. And in this way, in our transformed, in our Christ-like state, we'll always be with the Lord. Sigh of relief. The Lord's return marks the beginning of our permanent status of being in His presence. No fear, no hopelessness, just joy in the Lord forevermore. Paul's argument uh, makes clear that because of both the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ, that those who die in Christ will rise again and be with Christ forevermore. That because of these truths, we are to have a different response to death. That when those who we love die, or when we contemplate our own death, we must not respond as the world with fear and hopelessness. We must respond, yes, with grief, of course, but a grief that's based in the truth of our eternal salvation and our eternal Savior. Grief that has hope. So the question then becomes, what are we to do with Paul's argument as we leave this place today? What are we to do because we have a different, hopefully our view, if, if it wasn't right, if we didn't quite understand this death thing, what's going to happen, hopefully Paul's helped us understand that. And Okay, resurrection, being like Jesus, being in His presence forevermore. That doesn't sound so bad. 
What are we to do because we have this confidence in our own resurrection and eternal relationship with the Lord? What is the, the product of the argument? What is it going to produce? I know, it's a little weak, but I needed another P word. I mean, what's the result? What's the application? What are we supposed to produce because of this knowledge we've gained about the resurrection and return of Christ? Paul doesn't say, okay, now uh, try to figure out, guys, when this is all going to happen. He doesn't say, make sure you have the right view of the end times. Instead, he simply says, verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Therefore, because of everything that Paul has preceded, what, what he's just written, because of the resurrection of Christ, because of the resurrection of those who are in Christ, because of the return of Christ, because there's coming a day when those who died and those who still live will be caught up meeting Jesus Christ in the air. And whether there's a the seven-year gap or not, there's also coming a day when King Jesus, along with His church, will return to this earth and establish His kingdom. Encourage one another with these words. I want you to be encouraged this morning. There are some of you that are struggling. Some of you are facing opposition of different kinds. There are some of you are facing maybe the imminent possibility of death. The death of yourself. The death of a loved one. And so, I want to encourage you that the dead in Christ will rise. Jesus will return with His church to establish His kingdom. It's alright. And if you believe that, your emotions and your actions you'll have a, a, it'll be affected. You'll have a different response to death. You'll not experience grief and fear like the world does because you have hope in the resurrected, returning Lord. And this should also cause us to have a a different response to life, right? To your remaining, uh, very limited, really, time here on earth. Because yes, be encouraged that Christ will reign for all eternity, but also be encouraged that Christ is reigning in your life right now. That presidents do not reign. That circumstances do not reign. That Satan does not reign. Jesus reigns. And so encourage one another this morning. When the world lives in fear, fear of both life and death, when they, when they don't know what tomorrow will bring, when they fear wars and crimes and violence and terrorism, societal depravity, financial ruin and global warming, we can encourage one another that we who are in Christ have a real hope in the future. And we, can give, uh, and we can give this message of hope, the gospel of Christ, to those who, who don't know Him, those who don't have hope, those who are plagued with fear, who don't have any comfort in the idea of death. As they are plagued by the fear of death, as they seek comfort, we have the message of hope. That Jesus Christ died for their sins. That Jesus Christ rose from the grave And that those who trust in Him, those who are in Christ, will, like Jesus, rise from the grave. They too can receive eternal life. They too can be part of His glorious return. No need to fear. No need to grieve hopelessly. The struggles of this life 
are, are real, but they're temporary and they're fleeting. Our permanent status, our eternal status, will be to be in the presence of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in His eternal kingdom. And when we are secure, when, we, when we're secure in the reign and the rule of Jesus in our lives, when we're secure in the reign and rule of Jesus over our death, then we can be encouraged to, to be like, to obey like John Patton did. That's the guy in the beginning of the sermon. He said, I don't care about the cannibals. I'm going where God is calling me. Why? Because yes, I like everyone, uh, everyone will, will die, but there's coming a day when God will raise my body from the dead. The things of this world will pass away. My life will one day be over. But brothers and sisters, that is not the end. It's the beginning. Because our death or Christ's return signifies our transformation. Our eternal life in His presence. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead in Christ. Because Jesus will return, you will see Him face to face. You'll be changed into His likeness. Because Jesus is King and you are part of His kingdom. He he reigns in your life right now and He will reign forevermore. Be encouraged by these words. And today and next week and continuing on as you meet people who are discouraged. Discouraged by death. Discouraged by difficulty in this life. Encourage them with these words. Would you pray with me? Father God, Thank you for, our, for, for the hope we have. Thank you for Jesus and his, his coming, His life, His death on our behalf and His resurrection and that, that those of us who are in Christ will also be resurrected to be with Him. Thank you, Father, that we, we have that hope in You. Lord, help us as Your church, as Your body, as those who are married to You, as those who are in Christ, to take this message, this gospel message, to those who are without hope. Lord, help us to allow You to reign in our lives. Help us to go forth from this place, encouraging one another and encouraging those who have no hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.